Let us pray. Father God, as we go before your word this morning, help us as we close the book of beginnings and move and to the book of Exodus to see what is taking place here, what is being said in this word, and help us help this word to allow us to reconsider more strongly your promises, your assurances that you've given to your covenant community, us here gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As we say goodbye to Joseph's story here today, I can say, well, maybe some of you are sitting around going, it's about time we say goodbye to Joseph's story. I'm going to miss him. I'm going to miss him. I know maybe a, a few of you also might miss this story of Joseph. God so remarkably used this man to show the fullness of a faithful life. Few in history have ever been used so richly and so dramatically by God. Actually, the life of Joseph is one in which, for a Jew, it is often common to to look at Joseph as almost an embodiment of wisdom. Of course, we as the Christian church, we look at the fullness of Christ, the truest favored son of Israel, our Lord and Savior, as the fullness of wisdom, the fullness of the law, the fullness of goodness. But actually, for a Jewish community that has not recognized our Lord and Savior, they would actually look very often to Joseph's story as in demonstration of God's love, of what it means to be faithful to God, and then also the story of Joseph even beyond just a demonstration of God's faithfulness is how in his story we see God reach down into the world and prove to us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. The multiple dungeons of Joseph, the betrayals that Joseph endured, even last week, that final betrayal of the brothers who had been living with him, having love poured out upon them for 17 years, and they convinced themselves that he was basically a liar, that he was a hypocrite. He was just waking, waiting to pounce back upon them once the father died. All of this wraps up into being Joseph saying, declaring that Joseph's story is a story in which God loudly proclaimed, that you can trust me in the midst of suffering. And I will bless, bless you when you don't lash out. When you don't lash out at those who persecute you, but rather strive to love them, I will bless you. So much of Christian maturity is actually wrapped up in this idea. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 13, he actually gives us a, an interesting assurance that if we... Learn to love like this, which is a God-like love, because God, if we, the fullness of Christ, shows an individual who does not lash out at his enemies, that God's word is clear, that all will be able to see that we have a unique and distinct love. They will see, in one sense, the supernatural quality to this love. And... This was true of Joseph's life. Even Jacob pointed this out. 
as he was dying, that he would, we were able to see in the story of Joseph in his life of suffering and how he responded, we were able to see more about God. And so those who remember Joseph's story will be blessed with wisdom in knowing how then they should go. But we will also begin to consider in this sermon text today what will happen to this world power. This world power of world powers in the days of Joseph as they forget the story of this favored son of Israel whom God used to bless the known world at the time. And also there will be a development of a new reality just as God used the suffering of Jacob's life in order to bring blessing. God used the suffering of Joseph's life in order to bring blessing. Those who follow in the footsteps of the family of God will not be refined in a life of ease, but they also will be refined in the midst of hardship and difficulties. God's best work in his sons and daughters often comes at the cost of personal suffering. We saw that clearly in Joseph. Joseph was a brother who had been driven away, left to die, mocked, sold, stripped naked, cast off. And yet he responded to it with, ultimately with calling his brothers close to him, with giving his brothers life, new life. He honored them. He gave them more possessions than they ever needed. He gave them wise counsel. He clothed them in fine garments. His afflictions... And through his afflictions, gave God the remarkable opportunity to show the Lord's goodness through his response. Those who were indebted to Joseph by the wicked they had done against him were not repaid by evil, but with generous love. And while the world honors grudge carrying these days, the longer the better. If you carry grudges for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, there are segments of society that will praise you and commend you for this kind of mental mindset, what the world misses in such a shallow philosophy is that God promises to give us a way to let go of grudges, but also God displays how he blesses us in the midst of suffering. Have you ever considered how God in heaven, and I think Joseph's story gives us an opportunity to see this, he's going to have a lot of odd pairings in heaven. What do I mean by that? Joseph and his brothers, David and Uriah, Paul and Stephen, people who had great betrayals, great evil, great wickedness, will be united for eternity in mutual love and affection for one another. Never will, you know, Stephen turn to the Apostle Paul and say, hey, I just can't get over it. I can't forgive the fact that you participated in my murder. No, God is a God who refines us in suffering and makes a way for us to move on. And when we can grab a hold of that, that's a powerful thing for the Christian life. It shows how shallow gossip is and pettiness and rivalry is. Because we're going to a day where there's a union above all unions, a uniting above all uniting, where sins are melted away. 
And what do we so often do in this present life? We get caught up in pecking at one another and criticizing one another. Others faithful in the Lord were our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and Joseph's story is a reminder to us, one that we need to hear, that God's story has illustrated great reconciliation for us. And so let us be a people who reconcile with one another. Now, verse 22 tells us that the life of Joseph lasted 110 years. Biblically, that doesn't mean much, but for the Egyptian culture, we actually have this through their own documents. They saw 110 years as the ideal length of life. And so God allows him to, in one sense, Joseph's lifespan to be one where the Egyptians would have looked to his death and say, wow, God blessed him with the perfect length of life. Joseph was able to see his great-grandchildren living and living that long. The Bible often heralds such a reality as a special blessing of God. I know some of you have enjoyed that. It's, the Psalms will talk about it as a unique and special crowning joy. And yet there's an interesting thing here. There's Ephraim's sons, and we can see this, the descendants of Ephraim. And if you remember, Ephraim was the older brother whom Jacob gave the lesser blessing to. And then we have Manasseh's son. And Manasseh's son's name is Makir. It's the only one mention of Manasseh. Do you know what that name stands for? What that name means? It means bought one or purchased one. Or another way to put it, adopted one. The son of special blessing of Manasseh was an adopted one. And so in Joseph's two sons, we have that one son, Ephraim, whose generations can be traced back to Joseph himself. And yet in Manasseh, the younger brother Manasseh, the one Jacob had given the greater blessing to, all Moses tells us about Manasseh's family line is Manasseh had a son received by adoption that was recognized as Joseph's own. His very children, in one sense, were born on the knee of Joseph, so to speak, welcomed fully into the family. Joseph had descendants made a part of by made a part of Israel by adoption. And that's an interesting point because what are we today? We are a part of the family of Israel. We are here and Sunday worship because of our own adoption. I was just talking to someone who considers himself an atheist, and I, I was speaking of the Old Testament, and they were saying, You can't use that book. That's a Jewish book. And, I am a Jew. I've been adopted into the family of God. I can use that book. That's my book. I'm in that family. Joseph has descendants made a part of Israel by adoption. And through the second son of Adam, the favored son of the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, how can we worship our Lord today? Because we have been adopted by him. And then in verses 24 and 25, we see Joseph's last words before death. His death will be like his father's Jacob in the sense that Joseph, like his father, 
will die grounded in a faith, an assured faith, a faith of assurance. Also notice, none of Joseph's assurance in God, honoring the promises in his statement, is nothing rooted in the works of Joseph or the works of the family. It's not as if Joseph is saying, God will bless us because of how faithful we've been to him. No, Joseph's parting words of faith are far more simple than that. They are essentially, God has told us he would, and so he will. The, actually, the verbiage here used in verse 24, that God would bring them up from this land, which he had promised, to the land he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, is, get ready for it, it's a pattern phrase throughout the book of Exodus. It will often repeat itself even through extending further than the book of Exodus itself. God's assurance that God will visit, Joseph's assurance that God will visit the peace of, he is assured God will visit the people of Israel and deliver them from bondage. The promise, he is emphatic about this. And so Joseph declares to his brothers of his who remain, as I die, be ready to take my bones or a more wooden translation would be, would be, take my skeleton out of Egypt. And I first had to wonder, why doesn't Joseph say body? It's actually different than what Jacob says. Jacob seemed to make clear he wanted his body rather immediately put into the land of Canaan. Joseph doesn't want that. And Jacob made clear he wanted to be buried. Joseph doesn't ask for that. He doesn't ask to be buried. And he doesn't ask to be immediately taken into the land of Canaan. It's interesting. Because so much of the grief of Joseph's life was in being separated from his father. We saw that as the story of the brothers unfolded, that it it was the unique love of the Father that seemed to sustain Joseph. It was always his, uh, the, the concern that was on the tip of his tongue when he met the brothers. How is your father doing? Which was his father. And yet, he doesn't care if it takes the time, and he seems to imply he knows it's going to take time, that his body wastes away He wants to wait there with the people until God honors his promise and brings him into the land he promised him. It's a remarkable thing being said here. He's saying, wait. I would rather wait. I would rather wait hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds and upon hundreds of years if I need to. I'd rather wait here with you to be bar- then be buried right alongside my bro- father right away. I will be separated from my father Israel for now so that one day I can go to him alongside with you. And who will honor this promise? Who will eventually honor the oath a great many hundreds of years after the fact? So you know, there, we don't know exactly how long it takes, but Moses will. We'll eventually get to it in Exodus chapter 13, verse 19. But it will be Moses who will honor 
this, this vow. But as for now, we focus in on the final verse of the book of Genesis, verse 26. We all know how the book of Genesis began. How did the book of Genesis begin? What's the first verse? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Creation, life. Here we are at the last verse of the book of Genesis. And what are we at? We're exiled in Egypt. And the favored son of Israel is being put into a grave. But is it a grave? What is it? What does the ESV call it here? A coffin. I really dislike that translation. Actually, the next, both the first verse of Exodus and this last verse of Genesis, I'm not too keen of the English translations. I usually don't say that that strongly. But Moses had lots of words for coffin. He doesn't use any of the Jewish words for coffin. He uses a very separate and distinct word to declare what Joseph was put into. And it was an ark. It was the same word that will be for the Ark of the Covenant. Joseph declared, Joseph's body is not going to be buried. It's going to be placed in an ark in the covenant community. Remember what Jacob said before he died. He said, Joseph, when people look to your life, when they see the quality of your life, they'll know that God is mighty. They'll know that God is a shepherd. And that God is a, basically a firm foundation. That God is a rock. And often forgotten about is the fact that while this covenant community, this family of Israel, would not have the Scriptures as written by Moses during the years of their suffering, they would have with them the first of two arks that they will receive in the Exodus. This is the final ark of the book of Genesis where they could remember the favored son of Israel and how God blessed the nations and fed the known world through this one son. And this one son refused to be buried in Canaan, but he said, I want to wait. I want to wait for you and I want to enter the promised land with you. I want to enjoy that moment with you. And so he would have been somewhere, I don't know where, in the land of Goshen with the people. His remains as a, a testimony to the promise of God. And it's just this remarkable reality. And so while it might seem that from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Genesis, that it seems all for naught. That this book that started with the flourishing of life. Now we're talking about coffins in Egypt. In a land exiled, it, it seems all for naught. There is this ray of hope of the promise that was on the lips of the favored son that God will honor his promises. And in that, it's a remarkable testimony because what do we believe about those who died in faith outside? 
there? What do we believe about those tombs? Those who have become in, in the decay of years and such b bones in one sense here. What is our comfort? What is our assurance? Our assurance is that God is a God who honors promises, that those who have gone before us in death, they live. That God is faithful and true. I love having a cemetery here. I love that yesterday we spent time, you know, working on that cemetery. It is such a beautiful testimony with those with eyes to see of the promises of God. And so that is how the book of Genesis ends. And then we shift into the book of Exodus. And I have a second word. This is a, a, a Jewish translation would never skip over this. The book of Exodus actually begins with the Hebrew word vav, and. And. That's the first word of the book of Genesis said to translate and these are the names and it's an amazing and I've already told the kids we were doing an Old Testament class on Wednesday I debated doing a whole sermon on the word and I'm not going to do a whole sermon on the word and but this and tells us remarkable things we are in a gap of time of I believe 400 years God goes over it. Moses pivots with the word and. And there's an amazing thing we can learn from that. Let me demonstrate it this way. I often find myself teaching history. Imagine if you were to sit down for a class and I'm telling you I'm going to teach you American history. And in 1622, what happened in 1622 was the first massacre at the settlement in Jamestown. And then I skipped to, and then in 2022, Roe v. Wade was overturned. That's American history, folks. Your test is on Monday. Study up. Did I do a good job summing up American history for you? No. What can we learn about the end? Think of Egypt. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. The rise of pharaohs, the rise of political movements, new inventions, all sorts of things that would have troubled their hearts, concerned them, worried them. All along that pattern of time, they're forgetting the favored Son of God and what He did through the powerful God, Yahweh. They're forgetting God's people and how God uniquely blessed this nation through His people. And none of it is worthy of God concerning Himself with because none of what Egypt, the nation of Egypt, was concerning itself with in that period of hundreds of years was really tied into God's redemptive story. You know, it's popular in our day to say of you know, you're going to be on the wrong side of history. You're going to be on the wrong side of history. And a lot of the people who say that, I just simply ask them, well, by what side of history are you judging whether I'm going to be on the wrong side of history? 
By whose standard are you going to judge what is the wrong side of history and the right side of history? And let me tell you, the and tells us what is the right side of history. Nothing in Egypt over a period of hundreds of years was really worthy of much talking about by God, so he skips over it with an and. Because None of it really was connected to God's story and further is showing the glory of God. If anything, they're deciding to become enemies of God. And so it's forgotten. And it's important for us to realize this because as we continue to live in a world where when we leave this place, we hear the murmurings, we hear the concerns of the public square, of these the, the trifle of things, we make the, a lot of these things. And there can even be a temptation in ministry, and people get really excited if you'll just focus on these things. But we need to be careful. We need to be careful to focus on the things that God just won't cover over with a quick and and forget about history. We need to be careful to, when we go forward here in this property, to think about how we situate ourselves to make this property and one that firmly is engrafting in new generations into God's story. To not be a property that succumbs to the ands of life, that wants to believe the ands of life because the public square won't find us relevant, but also a property that will tell and share the good news of being connected to a story that has no end. This is good news. I love this poem at the front of your bulletin. Put it in reference to this thought. Our little systems have their day. They have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee. And thou, O, o Lord, art more than they. Don't forget the and. Don't forget to appreciate the and. The and says something to us about the timeless, transcendent, eternality of God. It says something about the attributes of God, which you should be going to Sunday school and learning more about. I listened to last week's class on recording. It was excellent. And so we need to ask ourselves in the things we do, the things we invest in, is this connected to God's story? Is this something who, that has eternal worth that I'm concerned about? And so that is a lesson here in the end. And one day closer than the last, every godless pursuit Belief and opinion in this world is closer to being forgotten forever. God already doesn't regard it as worthy, including in his story. And one day we too will give it no eternal regard. Do we want something that's lasting? Do we want something to survive us? If we do, we better be connected to God's story and what we do in this life.
I have to catch up to my notes now. <laughs> and so the Lord says, of every grave of those who have died in faith, they are connected to his story. And if we too, as we go on in faith, our remains one day, our grave one day, will testify to the promises of God, to the assurance that we want the community to have in our Lord. But what happens when, for the people who don't forget? What happens to the people who whom would have looked upon that ark of Joseph and remembered the promises of God? Remembered that God was coming back to them. We see that what happens in verse 7 of Exodus chapter 1. They begin to be fruitful and multiply. They begin to grow in abundance. They grow in the Lord. And this language, of course, is language from the very first chapter of Scripture. They are flourishing uniquely in Egyptian society. They're remembering the promises of God. And they are growing more powerful at the hand of God. By the hand of God, they can no longer be dismissed by this Egyptian society or diminished by anyone. And what is going on here, if the Egyptian people had just remembered, it shouldn't have been a surprise to them. If they remembered the story of Joseph, if they had not forgotten how God blessed their nation, saved their nation, preserved their nation through the favored son of Israel, they, wouldn't, they would have known why they flourish. But Egypt will forget. The people of God in the midst of the ark of the favored son of Israel, they will not forget, but Egypt will forget. And, he, and a Pharaoh who first respected Joseph and understood that this family of Israel uniquely gave us life, and so let us bless them. Let's give them the very best ranch land in the land of Goshen. Eventually, a new Pharaoh will arise over Egypt, and, he, and as verse 8 tells us, he will forget. He does not know Joseph. And as we learn from Jacob on his deathbed, if you don't know Joseph, you don't really know the story of his God. You don't really see the unique qualities of his God as a shepherd, as a mighty stronghold, as a firm foundation, as a rock that we can stand upon and trust. Just as in our own day, while almost every American has heard the name above all names, the name of God's one and only Son, there's not many people I can witness to who have never heard the name of Jesus. Who's that? If you don't actually know His Word, if you don't actually want to hear it, if you don't actually want to conform your life in conformity to that Word and follow His commands, but make up your own, does such an individual really know who our Lord is? The God who is faithful to multiply and bless His people? In one sense, you can argue the entire book of Exodus will be a book that can only take place by one group of people forgetting who God is and another group of people refusing to forget who God is. And those people who forget how God's blessing once saved them, they will end up attacking those who have not yet forgotten His blessings and His promises. And living in modern American America that is doing its best, the best it can to unhinge itself of any remaining vestiges of appreciation for the Christian worldview, 
forsaking a better son? Do we really think that such an endeavor will turn out for our country if we continue to tread such a path to be a good one? Exodus will be a story of those who forget about the saving God, punishing those who refuse to forget about the saving God. And then the Pharaoh, who forgets Joseph and his God, decides in verses 9 through 10 to make war against the fruitful people of God. He worries that they could take control of Egypt if they're allowed to go on unchallenged. Or maybe they would just actually leave Egypt itself and they would overwhelm Egypt. Ironically, they only needed to know the hope of the patriarchs. They only needed to know the promise of Joseph to know that they had no interest in conquering the land of Egypt, of conquering it by force. They should have realized there was nothing to worry about if they only knew the hope of the people who held in their midst the ark of the favored son of Israel. And so he decides, this Pharaoh, that he needs to undermine the strongholds that trust in God. The Pharaoh convinced himself that these followers of God might weaponize themselves to take down the very state of Egypt. And in so convincing himself of this narrative, he will arouse their God, the true Lord, the Lord Almighty, to defend his people. And we need to remember this truth in our own day. We live in a day and age where we have leaders and those who support them in the media and academia, where even simple Christian beliefs of life, of gender, of sexuality, more and more are being called an existential threat to democracy and society. That's a scary, scary, scary drumbeat. That's often being played across the country. And I think the scariest thing about that drumbeat is not enough people are talking about it. But you know what? While we are called not to repay evil with evil in such circumstances, the good news is our God will not sit idly by. If great suffering comes to those, comes at the hand of those of this new dangerous rhetoric, God shows us in the story, he showed us already in the story of Jacob, but he shows us, showed us already in the story of Joseph, and he will show us in the story of the Exodus that he is a God who goes before us, who fights our battles, and this is good news. I think we would all do better to watch less discouraging things at this present hour, but even more important than that is a better job remembering that our God goes before us and he fights for us. And how do we remember this? Remember this best, of course, in the cross. All our sins, all our sorrows, all our sorrow, all our pain is poured about upon him. The one who refused to go back to the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, until he had paid for our very sins, until his body was broken down into death. That's what it cost. And he was willing to fight that battle for us. He was willing to fight that battle for us so that he could bring us, his bride, into greater promised land that awaits for us, that awaits us. And we have still to this day a tomb in, in Jerusalem that is empty, an empty ark that declares for us 
the good news of his promise that death will not defeat us, that the grave is not the end. And so if the covenant community waiting for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in a land that they did not want to live in bondage could find hope in embracing the promises of the favored son of Israel, Joseph? How much more of a hope do we have in our own day when we consider the promises of our Lord and Savior? What a wonderful God we worship. The story is not over, it continues. And he offers us an invitation to be a part of his story through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you are the God who will come for us. That you are the God who does rescue. That you are the God who makes dry bones have life once more. We await in hope the full reality of that promise. The full promise of the Son of Israel who will come again in glory to judge both the living and the dead. And yet as we wait in hope, let us share the good news of adoption. Let us share with others, with other people, other individuals throughout our community, throughout this land, the awesome reality that they too can be engrafted into this story. Their life no longer has to be skipped over by God and in the judgment and wisdom of God, but rather that if they embrace this Son, the promises of the Son, the Word of the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you will offer them something that is eternal, something that gives eternal reconciliation where once enemies can be united in love and the greatest of which being us once enemies of our Lord and Savior united to him through his outpouring of love. It's in his name we pray and it's in his name we take time to confess and to reflect upon our own sins of this past week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.